Gang, take your Bible and open it to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're actually going to go to Hebrews 9 first, but I just want to make some highlights and a few comments there. We're going to examine Ephesians chapter 1. For the last several months, we've been building my father his own house right there near us. In fact, uh, Houston Holloway, who sits over here in this side of the church, he and his father have built one fine house on our property. It's taken several months, and I've tried to be a part of it as much as I can. I'm sure I've gotten under their skin just a little bit because of my ways. But I love building things new. I, I, I thrive on renovation. I even like the sound of the word renovation. I really like fresh trim and brand new paint and new flooring. It's super exciting to see it all come together in just a matter of a few weeks uh, we're going to begin renovation here in this facility. In fact, everybody needs to know that one of the first things they're going to do, and I found this out Friday, is completely tear off the front of the church. That means you're going to arrive at church in a matter of just a few weeks and not be able to enter that front door. So if you need close parking, I'd encourage you to park on the basketball court because everyone is going to enter through the side entrance between this building and Kids Jam, and that's coming in a matter of just a few weeks. There is something beautiful to me, maybe you feel the same way, about sprucing up the place, kind of out with the old and with the new, tear out the old and crummy and replace it with the new and fresh it's super, super fun to me. It makes me feel as though we're making progress. It makes me feel as though we're accomplishing something. Unless you are a pack rat who likes to keep things the same for all days, I think everybody appreciates the idea of replacing the old with something new and better. Well, as we've tried to show you for the last few weeks, every character in the Christmas story had no idea that they were part of God's eternal plan. Every character in the Christmas story failed to see what was coming. But as long as they remained faithful and as long as they remained committed, eventually God revealed a previously unseen third option. Often you and I, we're forced with two less than appealing options. We assume we've got to make a choice between these two. We don't like either one of them. But again, if we'll remain faithful and if we're true and if we're committed, often God reveals a previously unseen option. And that's what makes all the difference in the world. In week one, we examined Joseph. Uh, Joseph the angel revealed a previously unseen option to Joseph. Joseph found out that his fiancée was pregnant. She couldn't be trusted. He knew the baby wasn't his. He assumed he only had two options. I can go ahead and marry her and be miserable for the rest of my life because I know I can't trust her, or I can divorce her quietly and we'll go our separate ways. But God revealed, because Jacob, uh, Joseph was a righteous man, a previously unseen option. The angel told Joseph, you can marry Mary without fear, without anxiety. You can treat your fiancé as pure because she is pure. The baby inside her is very, very special. Last time, Tyler talked about Mary. The angel revealed to Mary that a Savior was coming, a previously unknown, unheard of, unseen option. 
You see, Mary, like every other Old Testament believer, was caught in the loop of sin and sacrifice. Sin and sacrifice. Sin and sacrifice. A perpetual, endless cycle with no change in sight. But the angel told Mary, there's one option you haven't seen. The baby inside you is going to be your savior. He's going to break us free from that cycle of sin and sacrifice. Because only in Christ are we free. Are we liberated from that loop? Today, here's what I want to talk about. The new covenant. The new covenant. I want to show you how the birth of Jesus Christ marks the transition, or at least begins the transition, from the old covenant to the new. The birth of Jesus Christ marks the closing of your Old Testament and the opening of your New Testament. But first, I have to ask you a question. How much do you know about the Old and New Covenants? How much do you know about the Old and New Covenant? A lot of people sitting in churches like this all around the world would say, well, it seems to me that God is pretty angry in the Old Testament, but Jesus is very loving in the New Testament. To me, I guess that's the biggest difference. Oh, oh. first, that's not an accurate statement. Second, there's so much more to it than that. You say to yourself, well, why in the world is this even relevant? What do I care about the old and new covenants? It has everything to do with how you respond to God in your faith walk. If you don't understand the differences, many of you, sadly, will favor the old covenant over the new. Without even realizing it, you will live as though you're still under the old covenant. Covenant means agreement. It's a legal term. It's like a contract. If you and I enter into covenant, then we've got a contract. We've entered into an agreement. And if one of us backs out of that agreement, there will be problems. There will be ramifications. Our agreement is binding. Do you realize that the Bible we study every Sunday is divided into two covenants? We call them testaments. The old covenant, the old testament, the old agreement between God and man, and the new covenant the New Testament, and the new agreement. I'm not going to take the time to read Hebrews chapter 9, but I did make it your family night reading this week because in my opinion, no one does a better job of defining the differences between the old and new covenant like the author of Hebrews, especially in Hebrews chapter 9. Take some time this afternoon or at family night and read through it. I'm going to point out just some highlights that distinguish or mark the differences between the old covenant, the old agreement, the old contract, and the new. Here's the first. In the old covenant, which centered around God's law, according to Hebrews chapter 9, it was a physical covenant. It was a physical agreement. According to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, the author says, in the old days, worship revolved around an earthly sanctuary earthly sanctuary. You know what that means? That means it could be touched. It could be measured. It was physical. Everything about the tabernacle in the days of Moses and Joshua and the temple in the days of Solomon and after was physical. All of the elements inside the tabernacle, the curtains, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, the blood of the sacrifice, it could be touched, it could be examined, it could be measured. The physical nature of the old covenant is what leads many people 
to favor legalism over freedom. You see, that's what legalists like. They like to measure your faith walk. They like to compare your spirituality against theirs. The second characteristic is that it was restrictive. According to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, there were only a few that seemed to be able to participate. It was restrictive. There was a priest in the Old Covenant, and he would go into that first room, and he would make the sacrifice for you and your family. He made it on your behalf. You didn't get to make it. You weren't even allowed in. Only the high priest, a very special priest, could enter the second room, which is called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, and he made an offering one day a year on the Day of Atonement, whereby that offering covered the sins of all God's people, but you weren't allowed to make the offering. You weren't allowed even on the premises. It wasn't at all open to the public. It was super restrictive. Here's the third characteristic. It was impersonal. Impersonal. According to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7, again, it was all about the priests. They were your representative to God. It'd be like someone else interacts with God on your behalf, but you don't get to talk to him. You don't get to worship. You don't get to make offering. You don't get to make sacrifice because it's terribly, terribly impersonal. The fourth characteristic, it's imperfect. And this is the big one. Over and over, the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul, points to the flawed nature, the incompleteness of the Old Covenant. What did Jesus himself say in Matthew chapter 5, somewhere around verse 17, when talking about the Old Covenant? He said, don't think I've come to abolish it or do away with it. I've come to complete it. It's unfinished in its current state. It's imperfect. Do you know why it's imperfect? Because under the old covenant, my offerings or my sacrifice did nothing to clear my conscience, did nothing to change or alter my nature. Again, because of that loop, because of that cycle of sin and then making sacrifice under the old covenant, which was imperfect, the sacrifices were only about food or drink or offering or special washings. They were rules for the body to be followed until the time of the new, the new way, the new covenant. Does everyone understand that most of the world, the overwhelming majority of the world, rejected that idea hundreds of years ago in the Middle Ages with a rejection of the Catholic tradition of indulgences, whereby I sin, so I write the church a check, and somehow I'm absolved of that sin, I'm covered by that sin? You understand, there's no point in that because while that may be going through the ritualistic motions of forgiveness, it does nothing to change my conscience. It does nothing to alter my intention. Again, it was physical, restrictive, impersonal, and imperfect. But now, with Jesus Christ comes a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. The new covenant revolves around God's grace, not his law. This is a previously unseen idea or concept to everyone involved in the Christmas story. You see, the characteristics, according to Hebrews chapter 9, of the new covenant are as follows. It's not physical, it's spiritual. It's spiritual in nature. You see, 
When Christ became your high priest under this new agreement, he changed everything. Now the relationship we have with our creator is spiritual, not physical. It's not about touching and measuring, comparing. No, it's about what's going on on the inside in a person's heart, the center of their will, the center of their volition. That is a new covenant, New Testament concept. Worship, then, can occur anywhere. You don't have to be at the tabernacle. You don't have to be in the temple. Because now the sacrifice is about Jesus in me, not some animal, not some other kind of offering. It's about my personal surrender to God. Another characteristic, it's accessible. Unlike being restricted in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, no access, in the New Covenant, with the New Testament, Everyone who's called by God can receive the blessing that he's promised. Now, not everybody who's called answers the call, but all are called because it's accessible. We're all called by the gospel, the good news, because it is accessible. Here's another characteristic. It's personal. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. Under this new agreement... We are closely related to God in a personal way. It's not about someone else standing in for me. It's not about a priest or a high priest making reconciliation for me. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 reads as follows. God said, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. It's highly personal because it alters my intention. It goes to the core of who I am and it shifts my priorities, does the new covenant, unlike the old covenant. And the last characteristic I'll give you is perfect. It's perfect. It's the only possible way. According to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2, Jesus Christ symbolically entered that most holy place, that second room, the holy of holies. But he didn't pour out the blood of a calf or the blood of a goat. He shed his own blood once and for all time. The sacrifice was his own blood. And by it, we're set free from sin forever. So please, don't ever just flippantly assume that there isn't much difference between the old covenant and the new. There is extraordinary difference between the old covenant and the new. Let's examine some of the specifics. Go to Ephesians 1 and look at verse 3. Paul is the author here. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Does everyone understand that no Old Testament character under the Old Covenant could ever possibly make such a statement? Noah, Abraham, David, Moses, you name them. Not one could say that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What is his has become mine because of the New Covenant. What are those spiritual blessings? Consider his righteousness. Do you understand that only under the new covenant, a previously unseen option to everybody involved in the Christmas narrative, no one considered themselves righteous. Why? Because they were caught in that loop. They weren't righteous, and it was only for a short time, 
until they're made sacrifice. But according to the New Testament, I am blessed with the spiritual blessing from God of righteousness. When God looks at me with all of my failures, with all of my flaws, with all of my shortcomings, he sees righteousness. Here's another blessing, his resources. Here's another, his privilege, his position, his power. That's all part of the new covenant. And anyone involved in the Christmas narrative couldn't fathom such blessings. Keep reading. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Uh Uh-oh. There's the passage that has divided churches. There is the verse that has fractured denominations. For God chose us before he formed the earth. Does that mean that God, before anyone was ever born, chose that this one would believe and this one would not? That God chose this one would experience everlasting conscious blessedness of heaven and this one would experience the everlasting conscious punishment of hell? That's not what the scripture teaches. People want to go down this rabbit trail and they say, well, well, wait a minute. Did he choose before he knew or did he know before he chose? It's not about that. Here's what we know God chose. God in his infinite, all-knowing sovereignty determined that every sinner who would choose Christ, however vile and useless, would be made righteous. That's what God chose. God chose before he ever created Adam and Eve, before they ever fell from the glory of the original creation, God chose that every sinner, no matter how faulty, no matter how failure-ridden, who embraced Jesus Christ would be made righteous. Keep reading. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and to be blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Do you know what holiness and blameless means? It means what you think it means, but you don't get it based upon how you act. Dr. John MacArthur writes, this reference refers to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know what that word means? It means it's forced upon you. You see, you don't make yourself righteous before God because you're better than me. That's not very difficult to do. The only way you're righteous is because Christ forced his righteousness on you. He pushed it on you because of your faith in him. Holy and blameless in his sight, in love he predestined us for the adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, capital O, that's Jesus, that he loves. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. Do you know what redemption means? Redemption is the term used to describe ransom that's paid to liberate someone who's held hostage. That's what redemption means. And redemption is a purely New Testament, New Covenant concept. Christ's death on the cross paid a ransom and liberated someone whose sin was going to destine him for eternal separation from God. And the forgiveness of sins, verse 7, 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect until the times reach their fulfillment. We studied about this several months ago. That's the millennial kingdom of God. You'll see in a moment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Jesus Christ. The only time that's ever going to happen is during that literal 1,000-year reign called the millennium. Verse 11. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, Paul is the first to get to communicate to the Gentiles the new covenant. He's the first to mark the transition from the old covenant to the new, where the first might be for the praise of his glory. Verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel, that means good news of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, those who who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. That's the power term of the new covenant. Redemption. Follow me, church. Under the old covenant, the sacrifice covered my sin. Under the new covenant, I'm liberated from it. Big difference. Why is it relevant? Because some of you still like your sin is merely covered. Some of you still act like your sin is merely hidden. Some of you still live like your sin is just waiting to be exposed. Not under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, I'm redeemed. I've been redeemed. That's the power term of the new covenant. So from this passage with the few minutes I have remaining, let me highlight at least three important positions we hold because we, unlike those in the Christmas story, live under the new covenant and not the old. Here's the first one. It comes from verse 5. I read it a moment ago. It's sonship. Sonship. Verse 5. The adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Does everybody understand this is an exclusively New Testament concept? The idea of being a son of God or a daughter of God, the family of God, that nobody thought that or felt that or believed that in the Old Testament. It's purely a New Testament. It's exclusively a New Covenant idea. It was not part of the Old Covenant. Old Testament believers, they weren't considered part of God's family. They certainly didn't see themselves that way. Remember, they had no access to God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul wrote, You didn't receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. You know what Abba means? It means daddy. It's a term of affection, endearment. No one in the Old Testament addressed their creator as dad. The reason I call my father dad is because he's not just my biological father. He's my dad. Paul said, Under the new covenant, the relationship is one not simply of father and son, father and daughter, but one of daddy and daughter. W.A. Chriswell, 
writes, while all men are the creation of God, only the regenerate ones are his sons. And that sonship is so personal, it's so intimate, that any follower of Jesus Christ may feel perfectly confident in addressing God as Abba. Abba. What are the benefits of sonship? What does this mean? Some of you have no idea what a great position you're in simply because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Even under the New Covenant, in the New Testament, you feel like you're still caught in that loop. Not if you're a son. Because no matter what you do, you'll never change that relationship. Here's some benefits of sonship. I wrote a few down. I have a loving father to guide me. No one in the Old Testament, no one in the Christmas narrative saw their creator as a loving father who guided them. No one. This is, again, purely a New Testament, New Covenant idea. Even when I've disappointed him, I still belong to him. Here's number two. I have a priceless legacy. Think about this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You belong to the family of God. So think about this. That means you belong to the family. There's no greater. I mean, feel free to go ahead and mention my name along with Abraham and David and Moses. Because we're cut from the same cloth. We belong to the same family. I have a priceless legacy. Their heritage is now my heritage. Do I live like it? Here's number three. I have an eternal inheritance. I'm going to see heaven one day. And I'm going to be blessed for all of eternity because I'm a child of the king. Imagine every day, not one of them less than utterly fulfilling. That's incredible. You see, sonship means status. And that's a previously unseen option for these people. But wait, wait, there's more. Here's number two. Notice verses seven and eight and the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. In verse seven, you have the forgiveness of sins. You don't need a priest to get it for you. You don't need an intermediary to do it on your behalf. You are a priest because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, in the Old Testament, forgiveness could only be granted by the priest. Well, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, guess who the priest is? You. You're the priest. Jesus is our high priest, Hebrews teaches. But you and I, we make intercession on our own. We address our Father by ourselves. You see, the high priest's most important function in the Old Testament was to preside over that annual day of atonement where he went into that most holy place and he poured the blood on the altar and that was supposed to provide forgiveness for the sins of God's people. Sins the high priest had no idea they had committed. By doing it, he atoned for his wrongs and all those of the people in Israel. And as I noted earlier, what he did was he connected God to the people, but there was nothing personal about it. He was the only one that could do it. It was ritualistic. It was predictable. But all of that changed with the new covenant. Do you know what your number one job as priest is? Same thing, to offer the sacrifice. Your number one job as a priest 
is to offer the sacrifice. You thought, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought my number one job as a follower of Jesus was to be a good person. We'll get to that. No, your number one job is to offer the sacrifice. Well, what is the sacrifice? The Bible teaches the sacrifice is total life commitment. That's the sacrifice. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I'm begging you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Make important to you what is important to God. Tell you another sacrifice, prayer. Remember the model prayer that Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, that's where sacrificial prayer begins. Because prayer is about what God wants, not necessarily what you want. Here's another sacrifice. The sacrifice of praise. That's what we do when we sing songs in church. We elevate God. And when we elevate God, we humble ourselves. We sacrifice our own self-sovereignty and celebrate his. Here's the last one. Altruism. Now we're getting to what we're all familiar with. Doing good things. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. The author writes, Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. According to the New Testament, the new covenant, the new agreement, a previously unseen option to the people in the Christmas narrative, You are not only a son of God, a daughter of God, you are your own priest. And here's number, or the last thing, what is the greatest benefit of the priest? That's private access to God. Nobody has to do it for me. Wherever I am, whatever I've done, I have private access to my creator. My creator knows who I am. He knows my name. Dr. Frank Gallagher wrote, as a priest, you have the right to represent yourself before God having your own relationship with him. No one has the right to judge or measure your spiritual life, nor do you have the right to judge or measure others. Stop and think about this. Unless you are from a Catholic background, you may not understand the importance of this New Testament concept. Because upon believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be and deciding to make him Lord in your life, you gained both the rewards and the responsibilities of the priesthood. It's pretty powerful. Here, here's one last thing, and that's partnership. And it comes from verses 9, also really verses 13 and 14. In verse 9, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. How did he do that? Verses 13 and 14. By giving us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, a deposit and a guarantee. You know what that means? That means that God and I are partners. We're partners. No one in the Old Testament, no one under the Old Covenant saw themselves as a partner with God. It's like the CEO has shared the business plan with me. I'm not nearly as smart. I'm not nearly as knowledgeable. I'm not nearly as experienced. Nevertheless, I'm in on the plan. You see, understanding the will of God gives me purpose. The will of God. That's a very, very interesting subject to me. I wish I had an hour to teach about that alone. When it comes to the will of God, I want you to do a few things for me. Keep it simple. Number one, 
Keep it simple. God probably doesn't care whether you drive a Cadillac or a used Nissan. Probably doesn't care. Why we pray about such things is beyond me. When it comes to the will of God, God wants you to manage your money well. So he doesn't care if you drive a new car or an old car. God probably doesn't care if your child goes to a private school or a public school. God does want you to parent responsibly. But these little things make very little difference in the grand scheme of things. You see, the process is about responding to God, not God's responding to you. Tell me what to do so I'll be happier. Keep it simple. Number two, keep it focused. Go to the book first. Go to the book first. Keep it focused. When it comes to the will of God, what is the plan of God for my life, for my circumstance, for my family? Go here first. This is the tried and true, tested, inspired revelation of your creator. And I got to tell you something. I've never known a student of this book to wring their hands and pat their brow and writhe with anxiety when it comes to making a decision. Keep it focused. Here's number three. Keep it real. If you're not willing to respond to it, don't expect him to reveal it. See? If you're not willing to give sacrificially to his work, don't expect an answer on the Cadillac. Let's put it that way. You dig? Sonship, priesthood, partnership. Those were concepts unknown by the people in the Christmas narrative. But they're part of your faith walk. And I wanted you to see it. You know what it means? It means you are somebody. It means you are somebody. Many years ago, I used to enjoy listening to Paul Harvey on the radio. Paul Harvey had this little three-minute or five-minute radio broadcast, and he'd say at the close of his program, from our For What It's Worth department. And one day he told a story about Speedy Morris. Speedy Morris was a college basketball coach. He was the coach of LaSalle University, an up-and-coming program. It was gaining a little bit of national notoriety. One morning, he's upstairs in his bathroom and he's shaving. And his wife hollers from downstairs, Honey, Sports Illustrated is on the phone. He nicks himself, starts bleeding. He comes running down the stairs with a towel, wiping a mixture of blood and lather from his face, trips over a child's toy and rolls head over heels, gets to the bottom of the stairs, runs into the kitchen, grabs the phone. All he can think of is national recognition. National recognition for me. He puts the phone to his ear and he says, this is Speedy Morris. And the voice on the other end of the line said, Mr. Morris, for a mere 74 cents a day, you can receive a one-year trial subscription to Sports Illustrated magazine. Two weeks ago, my wife sent these home with all of your kids and Kids Jam. It says, you're invited to a birthday party for Jesus. There's one little girl in our church named Halen. I think she's in kindergarten. It's Chris's daughter, he and Amanda's daughter. She went home and gave it to her mom, and this is what she said. I can't believe that I've been invited to a birthday party for Jesus. She said, I'm going to buy him a Walmart gift card because I know he'll love it. Listen, when you talk to God this week, believe me, he knows exactly who's on the other end of the line. When you pray this afternoon, believe me, he knows exactly who you are. He considers you someone of prominent status. 
a son, a daughter, a partner, and a priest, and worthy of his full attention. I pray you see who you are because of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a clear portion of Scripture that shines the light on not who we are in ourselves, but who we are because of Jesus. I pray that during this season, above all others, we might recognize it. And I pray it because of Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Go make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time. And Merry Christmas.